What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Tina Swithin is a mother, author, speaker, and victim advocate in the family court arena. Her blog, One Mom's Battle, as well as her online platforms and groups, offer support for those going through divorces or custody battles to hundreds of thousands of people each month. Her journey in the family court system began at her own birth, then continued after escaping her abusive marriage. She uses her experience and ever-growing expertise to enact social and legal change in the family court landscape. And I'm so glad she joined us today to share all that came next for her amidst her very taxing battle. I am Tina Swithin. I often refer to myself as the accidental author and accidental advocate. If my high school writing teacher would know that I've written books, he's deceased, he'd probably be rolling over right now (laughs) going, what? I didn't love school. I didn't have these big dreams about going away to college. I have been an entrepreneur since I was very young, and I think that would be the first word people in my family would think when describing me. The first 35 years of my life, I say that I walked around whispering, feeling very insecure. I have a lot of time to make up for that. At almost 50 years old, I feel like someone has placed a megaphone in my hands and it's permanently affixed. I'm someone who cares deeply about justice, a fierce protector of children and anyone who has suffered injustice. I think of myself almost like an instant pot, a pressure cooker. I've had so much to say for so many years. I have a fear of heights and I would rather jump out of an airplane than speak publicly, which is interesting because that's a lot of what I do now. My life started in the family court system. In 1974, I was born to teen parents. My mom had just turned 17 when I was born, and my dad was just about a year and a half older than her. Pretty quickly into my infancy, we discovered that my mom was suffering from mental illness. Six months into my life, she was institutionalized for the first time. Shortly after that, my dad received full custody of me as a 19-year-old young man. I just can't even imagine. So my dad and I really did grow up together. I grew up around a lot of addiction, a lot of abuse. 
I do believe it has made me who I am today, but would I wish that on anyone else? No, I struggled a lot as a child. I didn't grow up with healthy role models in terms of what a relationship should be like or what you look for in a partner. I had this fear of being alone. You could probably trace it back to abandonment issues with my mom and different things that occurred in my childhood, but I have always been in relationships. My early teen years, those were not healthy relationships. It was very much the bad boy type. I could write a whole book just about that. When I was 18 years old, I just had this awakening thinking, I know what my baggage looks like from childhood. I don't want to live my life repeating the same cycles and patterns. So pretty early on, I set out to get therapy and to really work on myself. That was before we were really talking about these things and talking about therapy, but I recognize what I had to unpack. And when I was 22 years old, I met with a new therapist and she said to me, I'll work with you, but I want a commitment that you'll take a year off of dating. We're going to do a deep dive and we're really going to unpack things together. And I remember at that first session, she asked me to describe what I liked about myself. I couldn't think of a single thing. It was an awkward silence. And I finally said, my toes. I've been told I have cute toes. And so if that gives insight into where my self-esteem was at that point, I don't know what else would be a better descriptor. So I did. I took off a year and a half, a really deep dive into therapy. I had never been to lunch alone before. That felt so uncomfortable to me. I ended up taking a four-day vacation by myself to Catalina Island, 25 years old, and that was the first time I had been anywhere alone. In reflection, it was really one of the best years of my life. I met my now ex-husband when I first started dating a year and a half into this healing journey that I went on. Now, in hindsight, he's been described by lots of mental health professionals. Obviously, I'm not qualified to diagnose anyone, but I've heard terms sociopath, psychopath, narcissistic personality disorder. If I look back over the course of my nine-year relationship, I was projecting who I was, my values, all of the things that were important to me and who I was at a core level. I was projecting those things onto someone who was not deserving and someone who had not earned my trust. So I walked around giving the benefit of the doubt to my own detriment. I overrode my gut instincts and intuition for so many years, telling myself no one's perfect. These are just things that we can work through. I truly did believe in him because like with so many of these people, the love bombing, it was over the top. I had grown up very blue collar, single dad. So the excess, the vacations, the trips, the gifts, the poetry, it was all new to me. It actually made me really uncomfortable. But I would tell myself, this is what adult dating is like. I've never dated a man before. So I thought this is just what it's like to be a grown up. There was a lot of gaslighting, psychological abuse, making me doubt myself. When you are in a relationship with someone like this, 
and they are so intent on knowing who you are, learning all about you, hanging on your every word. I thought that was an amazing thing that we had this deep connection and that he cared. But what it was, was he was taking inventory almost as if there's an Excel spreadsheet somewhere where he was storing all of that information to be able to pull out dependent on the situation to hurt me. They know where your every wound is because you've been so vulnerable in sharing that. There was a part of it that was so covert, I felt judged and insecure, but honored despite everything that he knew about me that he would still be in a relationship with me. He had full control to knock me off of that pedestal, put me back on. Over time, you're desperately trying to get back up there and you're never going to be able to do it. It really got to the point in my marriage where I was criticized for how I put food away in the pantry. If the labels were not facing forward, if things didn't look pretty, it was that I didn't care about aesthetics and details in his words, I grew up trash. He criticized the way I brushed my teeth, my weight, everything about me was wrong. Over time, you can imagine how that whittles away at who you are. I remember at one point, my brother said to me, it was about eight and a half years in, he said, I don't even recognize you. Do you recognize yourself when you look in the mirror because your spark is gone? By the time I finally sought counseling in my marriage, I really did believe that I could be part of the problem because on paper and in our community, his family looked amazing. His parents had been married over 30 years. They worked in education. He used my childhood against me as a way to elevate himself in rank to the point that I felt lucky just to be in his presence and accepted by his family. I had had a therapist say to me, this is someone who's incredibly narcissistic. And this was 2008. I had never heard that word. I looked it up and I thought, that's him. Oh my gosh, we have a label. Now, how do we fix it? And the therapist looked at me and said, honey, you don't, you gotta go or this is your life. That's your choice to make. So when I told him I wanted a divorce, he, for the first time, agreed to go to counseling, but it was under his terms. He wanted a man. The person had to have a PhD. So that sets the stage. We found someone very early on. The psychologist said, I don't feel comfortable meeting with him alone because I don't feel that there's a lot of truth. At some point, it becomes unethical for me to entertain this. So he would only meet with us together. At the six-month mark, he had us both in the session and he said, I really believe a psychological evaluation is needed. I think there could be some type of personality disorder. I hear you say you're sorry about things, but I don't feel that you really are. That was the day our marriage ended. We had arrived at marriage therapy in separate cars. When he left, he called the therapist, said, it's done. Then he called me and said, you've successfully manipulated yet another person and I'm done. So that was the end. What I've learned since is that there's no training in what this type of person does in a relationship, after a relationship. 
when you talk about the abuse compounding and escalating, as difficult as it was being married to this person, where the education is really needed is what happens when you leave, because we are doing such a disservice to survivors. I still do believe it's always the right decision to leave abuse. However, we aren't preparing them for the escalation that happens afterwards. We know that domestic violence is about power and control, and that doesn't go away when the relationship ends. When you are dealing with someone who potentially has a personality disorder or very high narcissistic trait, that is a trigger for them, that loss of power and control, and they do escalate. The difficult part is if you have children, and what I experienced is the family court system becomes their playground and their stage, the children become the pawns and weapons. When my marriage ended, I walked in with rose-colored glasses. I thought his abuse had been directed towards me, but he had never participated in the kids' lives. And there was a certain part of me that thought, he's probably going to walk away. He's never cared about them. Or he's going to have to step up to the plate and be a parent. But that wasn't how it played out. I quickly ended up in the women's shelter with my daughters in fear for my life because of how he was triggered and then escalated at the loss of control. I separated from my ex-husband in January of 2009. I met my husband, Glenn, in June of 2009. It's interesting because when my marriage came to an end, before I understood truly what a monster I was up against, I felt this guilt of our friends having to decide whose side to take. I knew that he was very socially awkward and that he was reliant on me for connections. I actually took one of our good friends to lunch and said, please take his side. I need you to go be his friend. I am going to press reset. It was so important to me to have transparency in my friendships because in the marriage, we lived a facade, this big fancy house. It was all fake. I didn't know it at the time. I came to realize it, but I felt that my friendships, that I couldn't be who I was and I couldn't be honest with them without throwing my ex-husband under the bus. I didn't want to do that. So my goal was to truly press reset, make new friends. I put an online ad out, no picture. I said, I do not want relationships. I don't care who you are. I'm looking for new friends for coffee, concerts, whatever it may be, but no relationships romantically. Glenn had reached out. We communicated and finally ended up meeting for coffee. He had been divorced for about two years had gone through the online dating stuff and was just burnt out by it. So when he saw my ad, he thought, oh, coffee, I can do that. He's a park ranger. He's just a really even keel, centered guy. When we started hanging out as friends, we took things very slow. My daughters didn't meet him for over six months, and that wasn't even planned. But he's been with me through all of it. He and I have actually learned about it all together because as things started unfolding, I was in shock where things went, how they escalated. He was around when I ended up in the women's shelter. So he's truly been with me since the beginning. I first walked into the family court system in August of 2009. 
believing like so many others that the family court system is there to protect children. That all I had to do was tell the truth. Unfortunately, it was a huge wake up call very quickly. I had given all financial control to this person during our marriage. I started in the family court system with $178 to my name, no retirement account to pull from. He had put us in huge debt behind my back. So I started off bankrupt, literally, having to represent myself. I did not have an attorney to guide me. In the beginning, it didn't feel daunting. I just thought I walk in there, I tell them what's happening. They're going to hear me and understand. The first court date, the judge said, if this is the way you're both starting this court case, you're both crazy. That felt like such a gut punch because here I am in the women's shelter, filling out paperwork, tapping into neighboring Wi-Fi because the shelter didn't have Wi-Fi, trying to complete these forms and truly afraid for my life. And I was being lumped into the same category as him. My awakening about the reality of our system was right out of the gate. That is really how things played out for many years. 2012, I was in court 13 times just that year alone. So that gives you insight to the level of conflict. I was very good about choosing my battles wisely. It wasn't financial. I had actually decided to walk away from everything and rebuild my life. My 100% focus was the safety of my kids. Desperate that every single person appointed would be our hope and would help us. Unfortunately, I discovered that we are very much business transactions and case numbers. Parental rights really do trump child safety. So my children were put into really horrible situations. There were times where I would memorize their faces before I put them in a car on a Friday night because I knew how rock bottom he was. My greatest fear would be that he would drive them over a cliff. I slept with a hammer under my pillow for the first year. I carried mace around my house because I really did believe he could end my life. Finally, 2014, our second custody evaluator did turn out to be somebody who cared and listened. I remember him saying to me early on, it seems like he lies just to lie. Sometimes there doesn't seem to be a reason or a motive. It did give me hope that he saw through the person I was up against. That evaluation ended up protecting my kids. He recommended permanent supervised visits. My ex's ego couldn't handle supervised visits, which is very common in these situations. He disappeared for a full year after that order was made. And then when he reappeared, I can look back and see the humor in it. It didn't feel humorous at the time. His comeback into our lives, after 15 months, he wanted to exercise his first supervised visit on my 40th birthday, which was obviously very pointed. I put it back in front of the court because the trauma that my children went through just knowing that he was back was extreme. It had a big effect on them. And so that was the point where the judge called him a sociopath twice and said, why are we sending children into situations where they're obviously this traumatized at the mere mention of his name? That was a huge turning point for us. 
All contact was stopped. He wasn't even allowed to call us. Then in 2019, we took it a step further and were able to terminate his parental rights. I define a victory as protecting my children. It wasn't about winning. It was about my kids and their safety. I imagined that leaving the courtroom on a day like that would be a flood of tears and this overwhelming sense of relief, but that was not what it was like for me. I felt like I was in this almost disassociated state for months. I couldn't feel anything. It was hard to feel happy or lucky because of all of the trauma that we went to to get to that point. To this day, I say it's so bizarre saying that we are one of the lucky ones because to look at our journey and label it as lucky just doesn't fit. Where my flood of emotions came, it was about three months after that verdict. I ran into opposing counsel, my ex-husband's attorney at a concert. I did an ugly cry right there at that concert. You never know when it's going to hit. And unfortunately, my big release hit in a public place. I had the type of ugly cry that you usually reserve for the shower. I remember calling my dad one day after court crying and dads want to fix things. And he told me, march back into that courtroom. You tell that judge that you are not putting those little girls in that car on Friday night. And I thought, dad, it doesn't work that way. That's not helping me right now. My dad was upset and angry because of the judgment. I just came to realize that nobody understood what I was going through. Even people who were very well-meaning were looking at me sideways saying, but this doesn't make sense. You could tell the next question in their head is, there must be more to the story. And there wasn't. I had to get to the point where I said to myself, I'm glad people don't get it because I would not wish this on anyone. I really wish people understood that no one signs up to be abused. I did not show up and say, wow, this looks like a great wild adventure. I was fooled. And I guarantee you, everybody in the world has had an experience where they've been fooled by someone. Usually you don't realize it instantly. It's often slow and insidious. So really getting people to look at experiences that they've personally had, maybe with a coworker or a neighbor where they presented one way and then it turned out to be something very different. I'll tell you the common ground that I find with all survivors is that they're some of the most amazing people I've ever known. They're the most empathetic, kind. They are the people who will go above and beyond for everyone else and put everyone above themselves. Those are the people who are targeted. They're the people who would deliver a casserole to you when you just had surgery. Those amazing humans that are on the PTA, that are on the soccer field making the snacks, those are the people, everyday citizens, who are victims of domestic abuse. It truly can happen to anyone. And I get a lot of emails from parents who say, my kid grew up in an intact home. They had a wonderful childhood. They would admit that. And my daughter is in an incredibly abusive situation and we're afraid for her life. We're afraid for our grandchildren. No one is immune to this. 
One day I said, I'm going to start a blog. I'm going to call it One Mom's Battle because I really, truly did believe I was the only person in the world going through this to this level. So I just started writing. What I did not realize is that Christy Brinkley was going through a similar situation and that she was following my blog. When she went on the Today Show, she mentioned Google the term divorcing a narcissist, trying to explain her story and what was happening. My little blog went from 40 views a month to about 40,000 in the first 24 hours. And so it took on a life of its own. I remember receiving an email from a woman in Ireland who said, I almost took my life today. Had I not seen Christy speak to this, found your blog, and felt less alone, I probably wouldn't be here to write this email. That hit me so hard. Emails just kept coming through from people all around the world. To go from feeling like I was the only one to feeling this sense of community and other people who had the exact same experiences and feelings, all these light bulbs going off. It's very much been a grassroots effort. I had a full-time job back then, and this became something that I was nourishing in the evenings or on the weekends when I had the ability to do that. But it grew from those 40 views a month to our social media platform is about 250,000 people. It was an incredible risk to go public. Sometimes I feel hypocritical because when people message me and they want to go public with their story and they want to know how I did it, I don't know that I could tell them to follow in my footsteps. I am very grateful that the judge on my case did honor my right to free speech. I believe that in probably any other courtroom, I would have lost my children over what I did. So I think there's a way for people to do it. But if I could go back in time, I would probably do it under a different name because it really could have had an impact on the outcome of my case. I went to extreme measures to protect my kids from what I was doing. When they did find out I wrote a book, they didn't know the title. I had parental controls on all of our electronics so they could not Google me or any of my work. Because I did feel so alone when all of this started and there were no resources, my goal pretty early on was to become the person that I needed back then. What has come from all of that is the books, online courses. I've been doing divorce consulting for 10 years now, and I'm finally to the point where I'm passing the torch. I'm training others to do the work I do. There's such a huge need. I consider it to be a crisis, what's happening in our family court system. So training other people in their own states to become advocates, to help people who are in the trenches. I've brought in experts from all around the world, from different areas, psychology, legal, private investigators, to help people understand the system and how to be a strategy partner for others who are walking this path in family court. We started Family Court Awareness Month every November. We've had over 300 cities, counties, and states across the country issue proclamations and resolutions declaring November as Family Court Awareness Month. Our goal has been to educate and raise awareness in the general population to what's happening in the family court system. 
Then last year, when Caden's law passed at the federal level, myself and a group of advocates came together and started an organization called National Safe Parents Organization that has really united advocates from around the country to come together under one umbrella and work towards improving our court system, bypassing Caden's law state by state. I cringe at most media articles when we've got these horror stories of someone being murdered or a child being murdered or abused. We just had a case out of Utah where someone I know who's a member of my community, her 16-year-old son was just murdered. I just stood with his mom, Leah, on the steps of the state capitol in Salt Lake City because we do a lot of protests. That was just in February. And to hear her story and then her greatest fear came to fruition. Watching how the media has portrayed that, interviewing the murderers, friends, colleagues, and people saying what a great guy he was. No, he wasn't. He was a murderer. That trumps anything and everything. That is his only title. Leah and her son Am's story in Utah, I stood on the state capitol building calling every news outlet, asking them where they were, why weren't they coming out? They told me there was an all-star basketball game going on that had exhausted all of their staff. It was so disheartening to hear. And then to have this happen months later and the media was calling me, wanting a statement, and I had to say, I'm not gonna talk. I would have rather talked to you and helped use this to educate people on our protest before it came to this. It really rubbed me the wrong way. I said, I am not the person to talk to. I have a lot of anger. There are some amazing journalists out there. Hannah Dreyfus of ProPublica has really been hitting this out of the ballpark. Olivia Gentile from Insider. So there are some that are really setting the bar high and doing amazing work on this topic. But there's a lot out there who are just going for the clickbait. And these are children's lives. How have your experiences and media efforts changed your life or altered your path? It is my life. I don't know how to unsee what I've witnessed in the court system. I don't know how to do anything different. I feel that I was placed where I am for a reason, but I don't know how to have small talk with someone. I tend to isolate. I used to be a huge people person. I loved going to community events. Somebody asks me about the weather, I'm going to likely tell them about how many people died today because the court system failed them. I just feel like this path that has come from the awareness and the exposure to the work I'm doing and so many other amazing people, you tend to group in with other advocates who get it where you aren't questioning, am I sane? Because I can't talk about that. It's 80 degrees outside right now. I want to talk about real issues. Even on my Facebook page, my personal one, somebody said to me recently, I hope you don't take it personally. I had to hide your profile because of the content. It's so dark. And I thought, yeah, welcome to the world. There's a lot going on and we truly need all hands on deck. For me, I know it's been a lot of radical acceptance. I think the system needs an overhaul, but radical acceptance, here I am, 
I don't have the energy to go up against the entire system. My energy has to be focused on, unfortunately, strategy in protecting my children until the system changes. That radical acceptance piece has been a big part of my journey. The thing that has been difficult for me to grasp to this day is that we have judicial officers sitting on the bench who have zero training in domestic violence. It's actually not a requirement in most states. It's a suggestion. And even the education that they receive, it is the very 101 version. We need to have complete transparency in family court. In my perfect world, we would have cameras in every courtroom so that anyone could watch. A lot of times what happens in these cases, a judge seals the case and then things get even worse. We need to remove judicial immunity. We need oversight. We need accountability. If I went and had knee surgery and the surgeon messed up the surgery, I would have recourse. I could come back and sue for malpractice. We have judges on the bench who have made decisions that have cost children their lives, and they are still sitting on the bench. There is no repercussion for them making bad decisions. That is very wrong. Overall, we need a court system that is prioritizing children and their safety over parental rights. You can walk into five different courtrooms with the exact same case, and you are going to walk out with five very different outcomes. Some of that can come down to whether or not the judge spilled coffee on his pants on the way to work or somebody's personal bias. They come into play, and that is so wrong. And appeals are incredibly expensive, rarely successful, and there's privilege that comes along with being able to file an appeal. The way our current system is, it almost needs to be dismantled and rebuilt. I do see hope on that front. Last year, the Violence Against Women Act was passed, and it was the first time that the federal government has recognized the crisis in the family court system. At the federal level, they passed Caden's Law, which does call for training. It calls for a ban on reunification camps, which is something I'm personally passionate about bringing to an end. It does put parameters in place for decisions that are made where child safety should be first and foremost. I have hope about the direction that we're moving, but we have a long ways to go. There's a ton of education out there on narcissistic abuse and relationships. Going down that path is great and it's needed. I would say know what your end zone is because there comes a point where you know everything you need to know and it can become your life if you don't take what you've learned and then go forward. Personally, it was important to fill my information bank and then check myself and go, okay, do I still need to be living all of this every day while fighting my own battle? And then really completely entrenching myself in my local court system as I touched on earlier, the thing that doesn't come naturally to us is strategy. When we are in this emotional state of trauma and triggers, we really are business transactions to the court. So learning your local judge, the local players in your court system, 
It took me two years in my journey to get to the point of understanding the importance of strategy. And that is where a huge shift took place. I became very skilled at documentation. That's one of the courses I teach because people feel frustrated by documentation. I'm documenting all these things, but no one's looking at it. What I tell people is that 99% of my documentation has never seen the light of day. But the 1% that was looked into and investigated is why my children are safe today. It helps you to get clear in your truth. When that gaslighting is taking place, my aunt said to me, Tina, write out your truth, almost like you would a mission statement for a business. And that becomes your foundation. That was so incredibly helpful for me. What are some tools and resources that you've relied on to get through these hardest chunks of your journey? Writing my books was probably the most healing thing I've ever done. So writing for me has been a big one, really investing in therapy. And that's a privilege as well. I am lucky to have access to good mental health treatments. EMDR has been a big part of my journey. I have a diagnosis of complex PTSDs. That's been really important for me to invest in myself so that I can show up and be the best mom I can be. Our organization, Family Court Awareness Month, is a nonprofit organization. I have traveled from coast to coast doing press conferences, talking to judicial officers, domestic violence advocates. Last year and the year before, we had billboards all across the country and we're really educating on Caden's Law and general awareness of what's happening in the court system. My second favorite nonprofit resource is the National Family Violence Law Center at the George Washington University. That is run by Professor Joan Meyer and also Danielle Pollack is the national policy manager and they were both instrumental in writing Caden's Law at the federal level now they work on the technical aspects with lawmakers state by state to make sure that the language is rock solid, airtight, and that child safety is prioritized. Professor Meyer has done some amazing research that really has the ability to help educate and protect children in the court system. I think the next few years, my platform will really be used to amplify efforts state by state across the United States as we push Caden's Law. I've recently been speaking at Senate hearings. I just spoke in Montana and Colorado. I'll be speaking here in California as we try to pass Peaky's Law, which is the version of Caden's Law for California. I really see my focus shifting, then me continuing to train others so that I can pass these torches because I think my time in the trenches with people holding hands as they're going through these difficult journeys of child custody are coming to an end. I'm trying to move to a different vantage point while giving them all of the resources that I wish I had along the way. One of the things in Caden's Law is calling for a ban on reunification camps. I encourage people to really look into what that is. We created a website called alienationindustry.com to help explain what is happening. 
with a lot of people making a lot of money at the expense of children. It's an unsound, unregulated industry of reunification camps that have flown under the radar for a long time. My personal goal is to ensure that those are closed and stopped. Please share with our listeners where they can find you and your efforts online if you haven't yet mentioned. One Mom's Battle is my main website. That is the handle that I use for everything. We have a huge community on Facebook. We have lots of private chapters on Facebook, one for every state across the country. Thank you for all of the advocacy and the work and the tenacity that you've harnessed for your children, the betterment of your community, and just for overall society's benefit. Thank you. Truly honored to connect on this. I look forward to staying in touch. As Tina mentioned earlier, once a court finds a claim of alienation, children can be removed from their safe parent and forced to reunite with their allegedly abusive parent via what is called a reunification camp. Although reunification camps claim their work alleviates parental alienation, many children who have been sent to a camp claim that the experience itself is abusive in nature. Attendees of reunification camps report the institutions allegedly withholding food, water, bedding, as well as other acts of abuse. According to the Center for Judicial Excellence, nearly 1,000 children have been murdered since 2008 by a divorcing or separating parent when the divorce, separation, custody battle, visitation rights, or child support has been mentioned in news coverage. Of those cases, over 130 of those murders are considered reported system failings because of a lack of court intervention. For more information on each victim, please visit the Google Doc link in the episode notes. In hopes of combating child abuse, supporting victims, and banning the use of reunification camps, Tina and others are pushing for legislation. Part of these efforts resulted in the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, which lapsed in 2019 after only being in effect for 10 years. Upon its reauthorization, the Keeping Children Safe from Family Violence Act, or Caden's Law, was added. The law is named after Caden Mancuso, a seven-year-old girl whose life was viciously stolen by her father amidst a heated custody battle with her mother in August of 2018. Caden's Law gives states incentive for creating child custody laws that protect at-risk youth by restricting who can give expert witness statements, limiting the use of reunification camps, and providing evidence-based ongoing training to judges and court personnel on family violence subject matter. Caden's Law also requires courts to recognize evidence of past sexual or physical abuse, including protection orders, arrests, and convictions for domestic violence or child abuse of the accused parent. For more information and resources, please visit the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. As a 14-year-old Olympic-bound athlete, the adults that were entrusted in my training, they groomed and trafficked me into silence, causing one of the most exciting times of my life to be filled with guilt and shame. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. 
If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.